please open up your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 11. We'll be reading from verses 1 to 15. Matthew chapter 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while in prison, heard the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, last week, I mentioned the importance of asking questions. And this morning, I want to reiterate that point. Now, I want to first start by outlining a few areas in life where asking questions is crucial. One area in which we should ask questions is as it pertains to education. Children, as you study and develop your craft, you need to ask questions. Ask questions that will build understanding and that will advance the knowledge of your field. Be inquisitive and diligent in your studies. Ask questions as it relates to your secular education, but also as it pertains to your religious education as well. Humbly ask questions of the word of God for life and godliness. And parents, we should 
invite such inquiry as well. As someone has once written, some of us refrain from asking questions entirely, perhaps equating a questioning spirit with an irreverent one. We we tiptoe through the pages of scripture as if it were a museum of fine art, each passage guarded with the words, do not touch. Others of us ask questions, but nervously and doubtfully worry that the Bible's truthfulness cannot withstand close scrutiny. We read the scriptures as if we were handling antiques that may just break beneath too firm a touch. But the Bible is neither a museum nor an antique shop, but rather a rough and durable world made for explorers. As we open this book, God bids us to climb the mountaintops of his majesty, dive into the seas of his mystery, and bore down into the minds of his infinite mind. We cannot run too hard on these hills or gaze too deep into these stars. We cannot exhaust these oceans, silence these thunderstorms, or break these granite rocks. We can only be exhausted, silenced, broken, and captivated by them. The questions we bring to the Bible pose no threat to this world. They only draw us deeper into its wonders. Well, another area where we need to ask the right questions is as it pertains to problem solving, right? It is crucial that we ask the right questions. Whether we are a technician or a doctor, asking the right questions is important to getting to the root cause of issues. Someone, for instance, may say, Doc, I have a pain in my arm. Right? Such a broad statement can mean any number of things. Right? It might mean that you have sore muscles or a broken bone or maybe even cancer. Asking the right questions, however, is important to narrowing down where the doctor should begin to look. Again, I emphasize asking the right questions because sometimes we ask the wrong questions. Again, if I were to reflect on the scenario that I just posed with the doctor, what if after saying to the doctor, my arm hurts, that the doctor asked the question, well, did you go for a walk last night? We would begin to think, well, what does my arm have to do with my legs, right? That would not be the best question to start out with. Again, when I was growing up, teachers said that there was no such thing as a bad question, but then, When I got older, I found out that that was not true. (laughs) There is such a thing as a bad question. And in today's 
text of scripture, we see an example of such a question. Again, beginning in verse 2 of Matthew 11, we read, Now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Now, before we consider why this is a bad question, I would like for us to consider the circumstances surrounding this question. Matthew tells us in chapter 4 that John at this time was imprisoned during the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Now, the occasion for his imprisonment is actually recorded in chapter 14. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. We will read verses 1 to 4. It says, At that time, Herod, the tetrarch, heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Now, throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts, we actually encounter three generations of Herods. This Herod the Tetrarch is actually the son of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, if you remember, was the same one who slew the infants in Bethlehem at the sound of, or at the news rather, of Christ's birth. And as we see in this chapter, John, as bold and as fearless as ever, is arrested on the account of what he says to Herod. Now, what is it that he says to this high-ranking official? It is that it is not lawful for you to have her, speaking of Herod's wife, Herodias. But why? Why was it unlawful? Well, the Jewish, Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the relationship between Herod and Herodias was both incestuous and adulterous. Herod had divorced his wife and Herodias had left her husband, Philip, who was Herod's half-brother. And then to make things worse, on top of all of that, Herodias was actually the niece of both Philip and Herod. And so John says to Herod that it is unlawful for you to have her. Now we should 
pause for a moment and consider the implications of what John is saying here about marriage. Ask yourself this question. Was Herod a Jew? By no means. But this reveals to us something about marriage. That is, that marriage is not a, just a Christian ordinance, but it is a creation ordinance. It is an ordinance for all people that was instituted and defined by God, even as we heard this morning in our Bible hour. Again, civil authorities should uphold and protect marriage, but they do not have the power nor the right to redefine it. And no man, especially a pastor, should bless any union that God has cursed. And so we need leaders today like John who will unashamedly declare these things. Now this brings us back to Matthew 11. John at this time is alive in prison. He hears of the works of Christ and sends his disciples to Jesus with a question. And that question, again, is this. Are you the expected one? Or shall we be looking or shall we look for someone else? Putting it plainly, John, once having affirmed Christ's identity, now is asking Jesus, indeed, if he is the Messiah. And this was a bad question. It was a bad question because of the abundant evidence of the miracles that Christ had performed. In other words, the miracles of Christ were his credentials as the Messiah. And so Jesus says to the disciples, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, some have tried to say that this question was actually posed by disciples of John and not by John himself. But there is no evidence within the text to suggest that that is the case. In fact, a plain reading of the text points to the fact that John was the one who asked the question, and the rebuke that Jesus sends is directed to John as well. And so... What we have then is an example of a great man who I believe became impatient and asked a bad question. More on that to come. Now, in spite of this rebuke, John was highly esteemed by Christ. For in the next instance, Jesus turns to his own disciples and affirms both the man and his ministry. 
And so for the remainder of the time today, I want us to consider both the man and his ministry in light of the question that he asked. In the first place, consider with me the man. John the Baptist is a unique individual, to say the least. From birth, he was said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 1, verse 15. Again, in Luke 1, 15, an angel says this of John. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine nor liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Now, we want to be careful here, and we don't want to rush to developing a doctrine of infant salvation based on the narrative text. Rather, we should simply acknowledge the uniqueness of John the Baptist in redemptive history. He's like the prophet Jeremiah, of whom God says in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And so, while we do not know much about his childhood, we know that he was a special child. He was a special child that grew up to be a fearless adult. Again, returning to Matthew 11 in verse 7, Jesus describes John by asking a series of questions. He says, What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? The answer, of course, is no. Now, the imagery that writers say that Jesus was pointing to was the imagery of cane grass, which grew by the Jordan. It was light and fragile, and so it could easily be swayed this way and that way by the wind. So what Jesus is saying was that John was one that was not easily swayed by popular opinion. He was not fearful or weak as some might have been led to believe. As one commentator notes, John sending to Christ to inquire his character might have led some to suppose that he was changing and inconstant like a reed. He had once acknowledged him to be the Messiah and now being in prison and sending to him to inquire into the fact, they might have supposed he had no firmness or fixed principles. Jesus, by asking this question, declared that notwithstanding this appearance, this was not the character of John. Again, according to the testimony of Jesus, John was a man's man. He says in verse 8, But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Now, this word translated for soft is actually or is also translated as effeminate 
in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And so John was the opposite of one who was effeminate. He was the opposite of one who wore soft clothing, as Christ put it. In fact, according to Matthew 3, 4, we read this of John. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, the imagery of John is one of ruggedness. He's a rugged individual. His garment was like that of a sackcloth made from coarse, rough camels here. And it says that he also wore a belt, which, is, which seems to be a callback to Elijah, the Tishbite. Elijah is described as a hairy man who also wore a belt in 2 Kings 1.8. And then there is that diet of his, that diet of locusts and wild honey. Now, in preparing this week, I've read some commentaries where some people have tried to say that what it was that he ate was a plant called the locust that uh, resembled something like asparagus. But I don't get the feeling, <laughs> based on the descriptions that we have of John, that it was some plant that he ate. I get the feeling that it was some real locusts that he consumed in his diet. And so, again, other commentaries have suggested that uh, John ate ate, uh, locusts, which were also plentiful in the area. It was consumed by those of humble means. And so... Ellicott, for instance, says they are commonly salted and dried and may be cooked in various ways, pounded or fried in butter, and they taste like shrimps. Again, when I was reading this description, I couldn't help but to think about Paula Dean. Right? You just add a little butter, and that makes everything taste better. Well, going back to Matthew 11, there is one more question that Jesus asks that is of vital importance. Again, beginning in verse 9, we read, But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Now, in verses 9 to 10, Jesus addresses the mission of John. He emphasizes his prophetic ministry. And though we have hardly any words of John that are inscripturated, Jesus says that he was nevertheless chief among the Old Testament 
prophets. For he was the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. Think of, of John as the transitional prophet between the Old and New Covenant. He was a prophet, according to Dr. Luke, in the spirit and power of Elijah, which we heard a little bit about this morning. Again, in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, the angel says this of John. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, at this point, we need to ask the question, why was John compared to Elijah? Was it just that they had a similar appearance? I would argue, no. Rather, the, signif the significance of Elijah is tied to the end times, the period known as the last days. And so, Dr. Luke, in fact, is quoting from the book of Malachi. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 4. Again, Malachi is a minor prophet and is believed to have been a contemporary of Nehemiah. And this prophecy is believed to have been recorded 400 years before Christ. Malachi 4, beginning in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statues and ordinances which I have commanded him in Herod for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so between the prophecy of Malachi and the book of Matthew, there is a total of 400 years of silence, meaning that as far as we know, that God was not speaking during this time, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 to 6 is the last word from the Lord before 
the dawning of a new era. Now this prophecy perhaps sheds further light regarding the motives of John's question about Jesus's identity. According to this prophecy, the coming of Elijah is said to be followed by the day of the Lord. Now, this phrase, the day of the Lord, is a fascinating one. If you do a word study, you will find that this specific phrase does not speak of a specific day, but rather it describes the outpouring of God's wrath upon a nation or nations during specific points in time. In other words, there have been multiple Day of the Lord events throughout history. Now that being said, there is a final Day of the Lord at the end of the age when Christ returns. And so I believe that what we have here is that John grew impatient while in prison. Perhaps he began to think, where was the judgment of the wicked? Where was the fierce wrath of God? Where was the treading down of the wicked, to use the words of Malachi 4? So far as he could see, he was unjustly imprisoned by the wicked. And instead of wrath, what John hears of Christ is grace and mercy. And so he begins to question Christ. Are you the one? Now, I submit to you that the day of the Lord did come upon the wicked generation of Jews, just as the prophecy had predicted. Those who rejected Christ were brought to a wretched end by the Romans in 70 AD. According to Josephus, Jerusalem was ravaged by murder, famine, and cannibalism. If we read in book six of seven of the Jewish, Jewish war, the historian writes, thus did the miseries of Jerusalem grow worse and worse every day. And the seditious were still more irritated by the calamities they were, on, they were under, even while the famine preyed upon themselves, after it had preyed upon the people. And indeed, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon another was a horrible sight and produced a pestilential stench, which was a hindrance to those that would make sallies out of the city and fight the enemy. But as those were to go into battle array who had been already used to 10,000 murders and must tread upon the dead bodies as they marched along, so were, not, so were not they terrified, nor did they pity men as they marched over them, nor did they deem this affront offered to the, to the deceased to be any ill omen to themselves. 
But as they had their right hands already polluted with the murders of their own countrymen, and in the condition ran out to fight with foreigners, they seemed to me to have cast a reproach upon God himself, as if he were too slow in punishing them. So again, the imagery is that the body that uh, Jerusalem is full of dead bodies. And the stench of the bodies rises foul into the air. And then due to famine and unsanitary uh, conditions, you have diseases and cannibalism taking place. Josephus continues, the Romans, although they were greatly distressed in getting together their materials, raised their banks in one and twenty days, after they had cut down all the trees that were in the country. And truly, the very view itself of the country was a melancholy thing. For those places which were before adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become a desolate country everywhere, and its trees were cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea and the most beautiful suburbs of the city and now saw it as a desert but lament and mourn sadly at so great a change. Now when we read Josephus and his account of the fall of Jerusalem, we should be thinking of the covenant curses of Leviticus 26. The penalty of disobedience promised to Israel under the Old Covenant involved famine, cannibalism, plague, death by sword, and the utter desolation of the land. And so, I say all of that to say that indeed, the day of the Lord did come following the appearance of Elijah. But, the time had not yet come in Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, it was the time of salvation and not judgment. And so this theme of salvation flows into what Jesus says next. Jesus again says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. Now some take this highly debated phrase by Jesus to be negative. Essentially the idea is that evil men will persecute the kingdom of God. And this is certainly true. If we think about it, in the previous chapter there is talk of persecution in chapter 11, there is persecution, and then even in chapter 12, there is persecution. Jesus prepares the disciples for persecution in chapter 10. In 11, John is persecuted. And then in chapter 12, as we will see, Christ will also be persecuted. So for these and other reasons, I understand why some have interpreted this passage as negative. But I believe that this statement is actually a positive statement about the kingdom of God. Now, the decisive argument for me has been looking at the more immediate context of the verses and the immediate things that Christ says, as well as comparing scripture 
with scripture. And so I believe that what Jesus is here speaking of is the fervency and the nature of those who were pursuing the kingdom of God. It was not the righteous, but the unrighteous, the sinners and tax collectors who were pursuing the kingdom of God like a violent man who desires to take and conquer a city. This makes sense as Jesus then compares to compare those cities that heard the gospel in Israel with wicked cities that did not. Again, as uh, Pastor Sean read, he says that if those heathen cities had heard the same, had seen the same miracles and heard the same gospel being preached as those cities that had the gospel preached and saw the miracles in Israel, they too would have repented. Now further support comes from a parallel statement by Jesus in Luke 16, 16. Jesus says in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Again, I believe that the idea is that since the time of John, there was a multitude that was pursuing the kingdom with fervency. This speaks to the success of John's ministry in preparing the way for Christ, even in the midst of opposition. And so, as Matthew Henry notes, multitudes were wrought upon by the ministry of John and became his disciples. And those strove for a place in this kingdom that no one think had, no one thought had a right nor title to it, and so seemed to be intruders. It shows us what fervency and zeal are required of all. Self must be denied. The bent, the frame, and the temper of the mind must be altered. Those who will have an interest in the great salvation will have it upon any terms and not think them hard, nor, qu nor quit their hold without a blessing. The things of God, the things of God are of great and common concern. God requires no more from us than the right use of the faculties we have been given. Again, it's like the woman with the issue of blood, right? Who presses in, in spite of all the crowds, presses in to lay hold of Christ by faith. This is what we are called to do. Again, there were those who would violently oppose the kingdom of God in a literal sense. But then, in a metaphorical sense, there are those who would violently pursue the kingdom of God with fervency, with zeal. To one group, there would be a blessing, while the other, a curse. And today is no different. In these last days, there is a final day of the Lord at the end of the age when God will once and for all destroy the wicked 
in the lake of fire that burns for all eternity. But God is patient. He is kind. Even as we heard again by Pastor Sean, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for those who are outside of the kingdom to press in. Now, if you recall, I started this sermon by emphasizing the importance of asking questions. And so I want to conclude in the same manner. To the believer, here is a series of questions to ask yourself based upon the life of John. First, do you display righteous conviction and holy living in your life? Do people know where you stand regarding the issues of the day, or does it depend on who you talk to? Second, and related to this, is are you like cane grass? Are you tossed to and fro by every popular opinion or by every doctrine by the latest YouTuber? Are you fickle in your beliefs? And third, are you about building up the kingdom of God or your own kingdom? Now, not everyone needs to be a pastor or a missionary. You can be a homemaker. You could be a cashier. You could be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and still be about building up the kingdom of God. Again, to state the question differently, are you about spreading your own fame or the fame of Christ? In John 3, the disciples who, the disciples of John specifically, who, who never seem to get it, they're always asking bad questions. They notice the people flocking to Jesus instead of coming to their master, John the Baptist. And so they ask John about that. And what John says to them is this, he must increase, but I must decrease. Again, speaking to the humility of John the Baptist, is that the level of humility and devotion to which you live your life for Christ. And to the unbeliever, I said that asking the right questions is important as it pertains to things like education and problem solving. But asking the right question is also important as it pertains to salvation. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer poses the single most important question that if you are outside of Christ, you need to ask yourself this day. The jailer says, what must 
I do to be saved. My prayer in closing is this, is that if you have never asked yourself that question, then may the Holy Spirit convict you even now of your sin, even of the sin of unbelief. And may he point you to Christ who is the expected one. Amen? Amen. Let us close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that instructs, that, in, that guides, that strengthens, that builds up. We thank you for your spirit that attends your word. And I pray that in all that has been said, that the Holy Spirit might take his word, his word about Christ, that points to Christ as the expected one, the long-awaited Messiah who has come and who is coming again. Who is coming with his reward for his people. Who is the reward of his people. And who is coming again to judge the wicked those who have rejected Christ, those who remain in unbelief, who will be slain by the breath of his mouth. Lord, we pray that even as today is the day of salvation, that no man, woman, boy, or girl who does not know you would leave this place having once more rejected this great gospel of salvation. For even as we heard earlier today that the gospel demands a response and to reject it would only be to store up more wrath upon wrath in that final day of judgment. I pray, Lord, that you would have mercy upon all those before us this day who do not know you, that instead that they might have the desire with that of, of the, the passion and the fervency and the zeal of a violent man trying to take a city, that they would press in and pursue Christ. Lord, we pray once more that you would be glorified in all these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.